So way back last year on November 19th, I began a series that I called Israel in the Plan of God. I think it is a very timely series as we all know that Israel is engaged in yet another war for their survival against the very wicked enemy, Hamas. In Hebrew, Hamas means violence. Hamas is an acronym for Islamic Resistance Movement. And the covenant of Hamas, written in 1988, which has never been revoked, contained 36 separate articles, all of which have the goal of destroying the state of Israel through jihad or holy war. That's what this is all about. I can assure you this morning that will never happen. It's very important to every serious Bible student that they understand the covenant God made with Abraham, which guarantees Israel's survival. The Abrahamic covenant, and I mention it from this pulpit a lot for good reason, it is the mountaintop covered in snow, which the rest of God's redemptive blessings flow from. To Israel, to the Gentiles, and to all the world at the end of history. I'm going to show you a picture here. On the eastern border of Glacier, Glacier National Park in Montana. And you could just leave this up. In the middle of the Rocky Mountains. Near the border between Canada and the United States. You will find the summit of Triple Divide Peak. That is where two continents meet. Droplets of rain or flakes of snow that land just inches apart on the summit of this mountain eventually take separate journeys through different river basins and they drain into the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. And they also drain into Hudson Bay. And Hudson Bay contributes a significant amount of fresh water to the Arctic Ocean. One mountain, three oceans. One covenant, three great blessings. My first message in the series was on Father Abraham. And God made three key promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. He actually made mention more, but I'm just going to highlight three. First of all, he promised the land we call Israel to the physical seed of Abraham in Genesis 12.1. And then in Genesis 13.15, God told Abraham, For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And the same promise was made to Isaac in Genesis 26 and to Jacob in Genesis 28. Secondly, he promised to, a, a, to make Abraham's descendants a great nation. Genesis 12, 2. I will make of thee a great nation. And thirdly, he promised that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. And this latter blessing would come through the death of Christ, Israel's Messiah for sinners. But God bringing salvation 
to all the world through Israel's Messiah does not does not nullify or set aside the specific promises that he made to Israel and the future blessings that he has in store for that nation. In Ezekiel 37, verse 14, he says, I will pour my spirit in you and you will live and I, I will place you in your own land. So the placement, the placement forever in the land follows the resurrection of the nation of Israel, the revival to life. It hasn't happened yet, even though, even though Jews from all over the world are returning and have returned to the land. In Genesis 17, 7, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan. And then God adds this, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Listen to me, despite what you may hear in the news media, there never has been a Palestinian state in the Holy Land. Never. And I'll, I'll explain more about that in a future message. But Zechariah 12.10 also speaks of the revival, spiritual revival of the nation of Israel. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourned for his only son. Brothers and sisters, Paul's prayer in Romans 10.1, where he prayed, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, will be answered. It will be answered. Israel will one day repent of their sin of unbelief. In message two, I spoke about Moses, the deliverer. Abraham lived before the law was given to Israel. Moses was a man of God. He was the reluctant servant who led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and he received the law of God on Mount Sinai. In John 1.17, it says the law was given to who? was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not that there wasn't grace in the law. The law was abounding in grace. Not that there wasn't truth in the law. The law is truth. But in a very specific sense, the fullest measure of grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Romans 7.12, Paul says the law is holy and the commandment holy. And it's just, and it's good. The law is holy. The law is just. The law is good. The problem is not with the law of God. The problem is that man is sinful and not good. All we like sheep have what? We have gone astray, each one to our own way. Now, Israel, you know, could not keep the law. And as a result of their continued disobedience in spite of the many mercies of God, Israel was taken out of the land that God gave them, and they went into captivity in the north. The northern tribes went into captivity to Assyria in 722 B.C. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, 
went into captivity to the Babylonians with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then another temple, the temple was rebuilt under Zerubbabel. And the Herodian temple that stood in Jerusalem at the time of Christ, it was a, a magnificent expansion of the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple. As a result of their rejection of Christ, that temple that stood built by Herod, was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And there was another dispersion following the 70 AD dispersion in 135 AD. And that followed a Jewish revolt led by, by Bar Kokhba, who many believed was a messiah. It took three years for the Romans under her Hadrian to stamp out that revolt in 135 AD with disastrous consequences to the Jews living in Jerusalem. Cassius Dio, he was a second century Roman historian, and he claimed that in 135 AD with that final siege of Jerusalem, the Romans killed 580,000 Jews during that war. Jerusalem was completely leveled at that time, and the Jews who survived were forbidden to return to Jerusalem. However, the Bible predicts a, a final regathering of the Jews, and they're in their land now, which is miraculous, but there's going to be a final regathering of the Jews, the Bible says, from the four corners of the earth prior to Christ's appearance. And when he comes, he is going to rule as prophet, priest, and king from Jerusalem. John Walford said in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the return of Israel is connected with the glorious and the visible kingdom of Christ on earth and is associated with the time of the fulfillment of the new covenant with Israel. And that's when God will put his spirit in their heart and they will have a desire to do the word of God, fulfill it, to obey it. In the third message, I preached on the prophecy of Balaam. Balaam was a very interesting character in Scripture. He was a non-Hebrew prophet or seer who was in it for the money. He was not righteous. He was unrighteous. But he gave two amazing revelations. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter, that means scepter is speaking about ruling with power, will rise out of Israel. And then in Genesis 49, 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh has to do with, you know, difficult to determine the meeting. Many believe it means to him who is the right to rule, Shiloh the one who is going to come. And that, that star that he spoke of, that uh, Balaam spoke of, is, is the bright in the morning star of Revelation twenty two sixteen. Jesus, who's going to have the government, the Bible says, upon his shoulders. He will hold the scepter. 
and he will rule the world in righteousness. Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. So today I want to speak to you on the prophets of Israel. The prophets of Israel. And we find the prediction of prophetic ministry in Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18. We ran that section this morning from verses 1 through 22. But I want to begin with this before we look at that. And you can turn there to Deuteronomy chapter 18. I want to begin with the thought that God called Israel to be a holy nation. God called the church to be what? A holy people. What does holiness means mean? It doesn't mean that you walk around with a halo around your, your head. Somebody pronounces you a saint, although you are a saint. Holiness simply means separated unto God, which means separated from the world. You can't be separated unto God unless you're separated from the world. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 9, God says this, When you are come into the land which the Lord thy God gives thee, you shall not learn to do after the abomination of those nations. Listen, brothers and sisters, separation from the evil things of this world is a biblical doctrine even though it is not very popular in today's modern evangelical church, which seems to desire to accommodate the world and to bring the world into the church. But Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 6 and verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, what agreement or concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he who believes with an infidel, an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Separation. Separation from the world. James 1.27 says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their infliction, affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Separation includes separation from religious apostasy. And religious apostasy often begins with claims of, of receiving revelation or knowledge from, from God. What did the serpent do in Genesis 3? He told, he told Eve, and through Eve, Adam, that if you, if you do what God is forbidding you to do, you will what? You will be like God, right? You will know good and evil. So that, that temptation to hidden knowledge that man was not to possess comes from the devil. Secondly, separation includes separation from worldly or immoral practices. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Amen, right? 
Amen. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save every sinner. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, here's your separation. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's the calling of the Christian. We should stand out among the crowd. John 1.14 says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Listen, grace, praise God, covers a multitude of sins. But grace never excuses sin. It never becomes an excuse for sin. Paul made that clear in Romans chapter 6. Jesus held both grace and truth in perfect balance. Friedrich Godet says in his commentary on Romans, he was full, or John, he was full of grace and truth. He says both were equally proportioned. Grace is divine love. Truth is the reality of things adequately set in the light. He was full of grace and truth, and we are to mirror the grace and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Israel was commanded to be separate from the nations that were all around him. And that's why you find all kind of laws that don't seem to make any sense to us, food, dietary laws, clothing laws, because God didn't want them to even eat exactly like the heathens ate. He didn't want them to dress like the heathens dressed. He didn't want them to rear their children like the heathens reared their children. Israel was commanded to not follow the practices of the nations around them. And one of those practices was seeking forbidden knowledge. So look in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10. There shall not be found among you anyone that makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that uses divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer, one who consults the dead. These were all occult practices. Different methods, but all under the category of occult practices. And then God says in the 12th verse, For all that do these things are abomination unto the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out before you. Thou shalt be perfect with the Lord thy God. For these nations which you will possess, hearkened unto observers of times and unto diviners, but as for you, the Lord thy God hath not permitted you to do so. So they were not to seek hidden knowledge, things that belonged only to God. Roy Zuck, in his interpretation, or Bible on his commentary on interpretation, actually says the ancient world was deeply entrenched in occultism. The world today is deeply entrenched in occultism. Not only were the nations Canaan, Israel, Judah, and Babylon engaged in witchcraft, Assyria was an active participant in all of the black arts. The city of Nineveh, known for its bloody atrocities and torturous, inhumane treatment of its prisoners in Nahum 3.4, is called the mistress of sorceries. 
So among her sins was seeking forbidden knowledge, the occult. And here's, here's something that's interesting. I, I like to follow archaeology, Arch, especially as it relates to the Holy Land. Archaeologists have found the presence of opium, hemp, and many, many other substances in Bible-era cultures. And they use those substances in ritual magic and seeking knowledge. And the American Indians, for instance, have long used peyote to attain an altered state of consciousness. I remember doing a, a summer VBS on Navajo Nation in Arizona. And this drunken Indian came up, you know, he came up every day. Every day he came up drunk. And, you know, we shared the gospel with him. I told him about Jesus. And he says, I don't, I don't need your Jesus. He says, you, you read Jesus in the book. I take, take peyote and I see him. You know, he saw somebody, but it sure wasn't Jesus. Galatians 5.21 says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, evident, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry. And then he mentions witchcraft. That's an interesting word. It's the Greek word pharmakia, from which we get our word what? Pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, drugs. Hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies. Now, I'm not talking about prescription drugs. I'm going to be talking about illicit drugs. But in Paul's day, that word pharmakeia primarily meant dealing in poison. Isn't that interesting? What is fentanyl? It's poison. What is, what is opium? Poison. What is cocaine? Poison. What is methamphetamine? Poison. In Paul's day, the word meant dealing in poison or drug use, and it was applied to divination and spell casting because sorcerers often used drugs along with their incantations and amulets to call up occult power. Where did that cult power come from? From the devil. It's demonic. I'm not saying that every drug user is demon-possessed. But it all comes from that source. It all comes from Satan. Revelation 9.20. The rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues that are mentioned in that chapter repented not of the works of their hands that they should worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders nor of their pharmakia. That's the Greek word sorceries, drugs, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Listen, the illicit use of drugs for whatever purpose, and here in America, it's not you know, necessarily to conjure up you know, demonic power. It's mainly recreational, but it is a sin to be repented of. It's destroying the lives of many, many people. Many young people. And that should not surprise us because its origin is from Satan. And Satan is called in Scripture Apollyon, the destroyer. The destroyer. Revelation 9, 11, And they, speaking of the demons of the bottomless pit that will be released in the last days, had a king over them 
who is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is in the Hebrew tongue, Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue, he has this name, Apollyon, destroyer. He brings death. He brings destruction. More than 106,000 persons in the United States died from drug-involved overdoses in 2021. And the number is much higher today. Drug overdoses kill more Americans than car crashes, gunshots, or AIDS at its peak. So, so what do we do in our culture? We ban guns and we make drugs legal. It's a little backward thinking, right? Drugs are destroying America's youth. Drugs are destroying America's cities. We watched the little documentary, Marie and I, the other day on what's happened to Oakland. What's happened to San Francisco? What's happening to Portland? What's happening to Seattle? You don't even want to go anywhere near those cities. They're rampant, not only with crime, they're rampant with drugs. And then you can go to a city like Indianapolis, Indiana, and you'll find the same thing. It's all over our cities. Drugs are killing America. Hardly Israel would receive the knowledge they needed to know, not by occultic means, but by divine revelation. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. This is what, look what it says. The Lord thy God will raise up unto you a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren like unto me, unto him shall you hearken. So God's word would come to Israel through the mouth and even the actions of the Hebrew prophets. We'll talk more about that down the road. Hobart Freeman says God would establish the prophetic institution, which as a type would one day culminate in the anti-type, the ideal prophet, Jesus Christ. And Peter replies, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 22, to Jesus in Acts 3.22. So turn with me for a moment to the book of Acts chapter 3. Peter's preaching in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 3, let's pick it up in verse 18. It says in verse 18, But those things which God before, which God had before, showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and he's speaking to the, to the Jews, and be converted that your sins would be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive, and that's what heaven has received him. He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high right now. The heaven must receive him until the times of the restitution of all things 
which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his pro, pro, holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it will come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet will shall be destroyed from among all the people. Now, Jesus is not specifically called a prophet by Peter in Acts 3, but he is called servant, and he was raised up by God like Moses was. So you could make the connection between the prophet that God told Moses that he was to be a prophet. The prophetic call came there in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and then the ideal prophet, the antitype, Moses was the type. Well, so who were the prophets? And, you know, you know, it's interesting because I've been preaching a long time. There are not many preachers who preach on the prophets of Israel, the Old Testament prophets. Whether it's the major prophets or the minor prophets, most of the preaching today is on, well, beside the feel-good preaching like Joel Osteen, it's on how-to type of stuff and to equip you to live your life, which is, and there's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of it is centered in the epistles and so forth, and a lot of attention to prophetic matters, things of that kind. But not much to the message of the prophets. And yet, when you when you study the scripture, and I'll point more of this out, you know, we, we focus on the prophecies of the Old Testament that jump off the pages. But probably 97% or 95% of the message of the prophets was not prophetic concerning the future. It was about the times in which they lived, and they addressed societal evils of their day, even among God's people. So they, there's a profound message in the prophets, if we would take the time to read it. And then you'll see the parallel between the message of the prophets in their day and what's happening in our day. What's happening today? Prophets were those who were called, given the Spirit of God for their commission, were under authority as God's spokesman, received revelation from God, faithfully proclaimed the Word of God, and shepherded the people. If the people would be shepherded. But a lot of people don't want to be shepherded. They want no authority in their life. So I put it this way, prophets were called by God to call the people of God back to God. That was their primary mission, to call the people of God back to God. Someone described them as covenant enforcement mediators. Covenant enforcement mediators. They had the covenant from God given on Mount Sinai. And they were to enforce that covenant among God's people and warn the people, if you go astray, if you break the covenant, this will happen. Although the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, the Mosaic covenant was not. It was conditioned upon their obedience. Jeremiah 7.25 says, Since that day your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily, rising up early and sending them. That's grace, right? 
listen, if I'm going astray and I don't even see my own stupid stupidity and blindness, I thank God for somebody says, you're going the wrong way. That's not a good way to go. You're going to get in trouble. Come on back. Get back on the path. And that's what a true friend does, right? He won't tell you what you want to hear. He will tell you what you need to hear. And that's why the Bible says if, if we see a brother or sister going astray, we're to go to them with the love of Jesus Christ. We're not to sit idle. We're not to stand by and watch them self-destruct. That's love. That's biblical love. In rhetoric, there is, there is what is known as the rhetorical triangle. Now, how many of you students of rhetoric have ever heard of the rhetorical triangle? Just as I supposed, right? I'll bet you Greta has. She's not here, right? The rhetorical triangle. The rhetorical triangle consists of three elements. Ethos, logos, and pathos. So rhetoric has to do with what? Words, speech. And you can see these elements of the rhetorical triangle in the message of the prophets, in the prophets themselves. What is ethos? Ethos, E-T-H-O-S. Ethics, character, morality. Ethos, ethos, ethos speaks to the expected character of those whom God chose. Whom did God choose? Holy men of God. Holy, separated from the world. They had a solid ethic, a solid base of morality, because it was based in God's word. It can also be thought of as the role of the writer in his attempt to persuade by appealing to moral values. And the prophet's message all throughout the Old Testament was, was an ethical mission or message. You're violating other people. You're ignoring the homeless. You're ignoring the widows. You're committing violence upon people. On and on and on. It was an ethical message. Lagos. Lagos in Greek means what? Word. So Lagos appeals to reason. Lagos can be thought of as the text of the argument, the message, the message the, the, the prophets delivered was in word and also in actions. And then pathos, pathos appeals to what? Emotions, passion. And we see that. We see all of these elements in the message of the Hebrew prophets. Jeremiah 27, look at this. Look at this passion. Oh, Lord, you have deceived me. Who has ever prayed like that? That's how Jeremiah prayed. He was honest before God. That's how he felt in his situation. We don't know everything about the, the prophets. And, and actually, their lifestyles, their lives, we know very little about them. I mean, how much do you know about their wives? Right? How much do you know about Jeremiah's wife? Huh? Nothing because he was never married. Because God told him 
that he could not take a wife because Israel was going to be destroyed. It's hard to, to bring up a, a wife and a family. And, and, and you've, got a mess, you've got a ministry, Jeremiah. You don't have time for anything right now. Destruction is on the horizon. As he cries out, O Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. He knew that for truth. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For since I spoke, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil. Because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. And then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. It's not getting me anywhere. It's not making any friends. I'm not influencing people. My ministry is an utter, utterly a failure. But his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay, which means I could not refrain from speaking. Thus, that's the passion of the prophets. Moses, so God's word came to Israel through the prophets. And secondly, Moses was God's servant who talked with God, and he gave Israel his word. He was the prophet that God raised up. You know, prior, prior to Deuteronomy chapter 18, uh, Moses was never called a prophet. But he's singled out in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But we do have this in Hosea chapter 12 and thir verse 13. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. And by a prophet was he preserved, Israel, their time in the wilderness. And then in Deuteronomy 34, 9, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. He was a prophet too. For Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him, and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And the distinct status of Moses is seen in Numbers chapter 12. And you remember the situation? Miriam and Aaron dare to speak against God's messenger, Moses. Numbers 12, 5. As a result, the Lord came down in a pillar of the cloud, and he stood in the door of the tabernacle, and he called Aaron and Miriam. I wonder what they were thinking. I wonder what they were feeling because they knew they had to know what it was all about. And they came forth. And he said, hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak to him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all my house. He is like no other prophet. With him I will speak mouth to mouth, even apparently and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the word he shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Where did you ever get the nerve to speak against my servant Moses, whom I speak to face to face, mouth to mouth? After Moses died, up until the time of Samuel, the word of prophecy was rare in Israel. 
So the temptation would be for Israel to look elsewhere for what? Instruction. Elsewhere for revelation. And that slippery slope would lead them into occult practices, would lead them into idolatry, and all the abominations of the wicked nations that they were told not to have anything to do with. They became too much like the people of the land that they were told to conquer and to drive out. They were not separate. And you know, God promised. And people have a lot of problems, especially the critics of the Bible, with, did God really say, go in and wipe out every man, woman, and child in in these lands that you're going to conquer? Yes, he did. Unapologetically, by the way, God said it. God promised the Israelites that if you don't, The Canaanites will become a snare to you and you will begin to commit their abominations if you don't drive them out. He told them that in Numbers 33, 55 and Joshua 23, 13. So you think about Canaanites and you think about these heathen people running around, you know, like tribal people, we would say deep in the Amazon somewhere, I don't know, you know, backwards people. Listen. The Canaanite culture was not like that. Not at all. Merrill Unger in his Bible commentary says, the Canaanites were talented. They developed the arts and sciences early on. Stout walled cities have been excavated in Canaanite cultures and their construction was superior to that of the later Israelite buildings. They excelled in ceramic arts. They excelled in music. They made musical instruments. They excelled in architecture. Their art treasures were in ivory, gold, and alabaster. Recovered from Canaanite Megiddo demonstrated their, their eloquence, their craftsmanship. Many of the treasures from Rosh Shamar Yugara tell the same story. This was these were advanced cultures. However, by the time of the Israelite conquest, Canaanite civilization had become decadent and was ripe for destruction. So driving out the Canaanites by military force was necessary because of the wickedness of those nations. Why is Israel driving out Hamas by military superiority and force? Because of the wickedness of Hamas. And they're not going to stop, by the way, until the job is finished. They can't. As a matter of fact, Benjamin Netanyahu says, we are going to seal the border on southern Gaza and Egypt. No more. No more is this going to be open for arms to come in and everything else. To rearm people. To do the same thing. Joshua 23, 13 says, Know for certainty that the Lord your God will no no more drive out any of the nations from before you, but they will become snares and traps to you and scourges in your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good land which the Lord has given to you. Listen, America, America is ancient Canaan in many, many ways. We're we're the leading country in the world. We have everything going for us, so to speak. 
but were just as decadent as ancient Canaan. The question is, are you being snared by what America has become? Are you being snared, ensnared by the culture that's all around you? You know, for centuries, the Canaanites practiced sexual immorality, which included all forms of incest. They practiced homosexuality, bestiality. They engaged in the occult. They engaged in illicit use of drugs. They were hostile toward parents. I could give you scriptures for all these. They offered their children as sacrifices to Moloch. We're doing the same thing, except we're doing it in greater numbers than the Canaanites ever did. We're killing our children under the guise of women's rights. We are ancient Canaan. What's going to happen? Judgment. I pray. I pray for our young people because they're going to be growing up in a culture that is getting more and more wicked every day. Parents, you better. You better pour your life into your children and pour God's word into them. God gave a means of testing a true and false prophet. I'll close this. The prophet's words would always come true. We're in Deuteronomy 18, verse 19. It will come to pass that whoever will not hearken unto the words which he this shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. We'd have a lot of dead prophets today. Because, you know, I, I, I followed the prophets of these so-called new apostolic reformation and all these. They're all false. None of them come true. Except the ones that are so vague, you know, you can't miss. But they don't give any specific prophecies, prophecies that come to true. They just don't because they're not true prophets of God. And if you say in thine heart, how shall we know? The word which the Lord hath not spoken, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing follows not, nor comes to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Don't be afraid of him. Ignore him. He's not my spokesman. So the prophet's word must be in agreement with God's word. That's secondly. The, 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 the prophet's word must be true, but it must be in agreement with God's word all across the board. All across the board. Isaiah 8.20. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this world, word is because there is no light in them. So if somebody comes to tell you something that's contrary to God's word, it's because there is no light in them. The prophets spoke the mind of God. They didn't speak their own mind. They were just his spokesmen. And Jeremiah 28, 9 states the positive side of the test of a prophet. The prophet which prophecies of peace. When the, prophet of, when, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. But we also have such things as false prophets, right? 
And and in the latter days, they're going to deceive a lot of people because some of the things they're say are going to come to pass. That's not the only test. It has to be in full agreement with the word of God. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So we'll continue next week with uh, bringing up some, some of the prophets of Israel and give you some samples of their messages and, and how they spoke and, and maybe give you a hunger in the process of, hey, I, you know, I think I'm going to go back and try to read some of those books and discern what they were saying.